Ahoy and welcome aboard to the next edition of the Mental Game Podcast. Thrilled to have you aboard. I'm our captain, Sam Brief, here in Chicago. Very excited to bring aboard Xavier Fulton for today's episode. Xavier is a former star defensive lineman at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the suburbs of Chicago and then at the University of Illinois, where he started as a DL, moved over to the offensive side, and then was drafted fifth round of the 2009 NFL Draft by the Tampa Bay Bucks. Xavier's NFL career is probably the opposite of what you imagine in terms of the glitz and the glamour, the success, the Pro Bowls, the Super Bowls. He didn't have that. He came into Tampa injured, shoulder surgery, an ACL, concussions. He bounced around from Tampa to Washington to Indianapolis, San Francisco. At one point, he was on the Colts for just 11 days before getting released. Xavier got really used to being released, to getting injured, and he never played in an NFL game. But in 2012, he moved to the CFL, Canadian Football League. He played for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. He won the 2013 Grey Cup, which is essentially the Canadian Super Bowl, and most recently suited up for the Montreal Alouettes before hanging it up. Throughout his career, Xavier has battled anxiety and depression, at first keeping it in, but then getting it out, telling his loved ones, leaning on others, on teammates, on coaches, and now becoming a mental health advocate, along with his wife Ashley here in Chicago. Xavier Fulton does work with the Mental Health Association of Greater Chicago and many other organizations to help be an advocate, to get the word out that it's okay to not be okay. And just like Xavier struggled while he was an NFL player, if you're struggling, you can seek help. You can be open. You can be honest. His message is important. His story is powerful. And I'm honored to bring aboard Xavier Fulton, to the next edition of The Mental Game. As we now know, more than ever, with high-level football players, a lot of what happens in the brain starts with concussions, the repeated trauma to the head. So Xavier takes us back to his first concussion. It was training camp my freshman year, and what were we doing? Uh, I think we were doing inside run. Um... I was still getting adjusted to uh, just some college speed and you know, being in there with guys that are, you know, you know twice my size. I mean, I was a uh, relatively undersized defensive end and I think I was maybe 220, 230. Um, and the funny thing is the guy that actually hit me was even smaller than me. He was an undersized fullback. Um, uh, Brian Greslikowski. Uh Good guy. Uh, we'd actually played against each other, each other um, two years before that. He went to uh, Hensdale Central. Um, so they run, uh, what are they running? Uh, I think it was just a, it's a standard sweep to the right, and I'm playing right defensive end, plays going away from me. I just wanted to get off the ball because I'd been just really, I'd been struggling just to like match the speed of getting off the ball with um, you know, the college speed and uh Instead of following the tackle down like I should have immediately, I took you know an extra step forward, started to readjust. I go to turn. I'm chasing the play from the backside. Greslikowski comes to uh, you know basically just chip me off the edge, catches me right in the ear hole, and 
at this point, blank for me. But on film, I stagger, take two steps, go down, get back up, and then keep running. And then we finish off practice. And my next clear memory is just being on the sidelines talking to the trainer. So I come back in mid-sentence. That's when I get restarted. And they sat me down for the rest of the day and put me through um, what they had at the time, the the concussion protocol they had at the time, which was not all that great. It was just... um, what do they do? It was, uh, what's a hundred minus seven. And then they just kept going minus seven, minus seven, minus seven. And I thought I was doing well, but they were like, no, you're going to sit down the rest of the day. And the, uh, I mean, that was just, you know, the first of many, but, um, you know, the protocol didn't change a whole lot. Uh, whenever I got uh, my wrong, but that they were able to see anyway, because there were plenty of times where I was hit and I was disoriented and, you know, it took me a couple of plays to really get my bearings back, but never said anything. Um, the, yeah, I want to say, yeah, that's the way that most of them went. Um, there were a couple other ones that during games that, uh, you know, the trainers actually saw and then pulled me off, especially you know, later down the road when I was playing offensive line. And um, they at least took more time. Um, and so each year they would just take more and more time to uh, really address uh you know, any concussion concerns, but luckily uh, from what they were able to determine and ultimately like uh, how good my acting skills had gotten, um, I was able to get back on the field relatively quickly um, after those concussions. We know a lot more now about what it does to your brain. What did the concussions do to you as a person, just the way you think, the way you act, the way you interact with people? The early on symptoms, or at least the early on um, you know, symptoms for me, just that fogginess, that haze, it just stayed longer and longer and longer each time. Um, got to the point where, actually, when I was boxing, I actually had, uh, after my last fight, had a pretty bad concussion, but I wasn't with the team and I didn't have, um, uh, you know, didn't have any medical insurance at the time, obviously, because if you're not playing, you don't have any coverage. Um, and I was waiting to be signed actually by the, uh, by the CFL, um, when that was going on. And, um, that one was probably the worst one because it lasted for weeks and I was still trying to work a side job at the time. It got to the point, my boss pulled me to the side. He was like, um, actually was she, uh, she said, um, you need, uh, it's like, I think you need to go home because you are not acting like yourself at all. And we're just really worried about you. Um, it's funny because I actually brought the trophy into work and everyone was really excited about it. But um, yeah, they were all very concerned about me and it was not, uh, it was not a good deal at all. That one was very scary. The guy that uh, actually beat became a professional boxer a couple of years later. So that's, that's the caliber guy I was fighting against. Can you tell me a bit about your boxing? Because it's interesting looking at your career, (laughs) you've got this linear path, college football, NFL, CFL, but you were a boxing champion a couple of years back. How did you first get into that? Uh, the very first time I put on boxing gloves was for a um, sort of an extra workout when I was with the Buccaneers. Um, so I had been cleared to my career is peppered with injuries. So <laughs> I was cleared to uh, start working out. Um, after my um, shoulder surgery that I uh, got uh, not so long after the combine. And 
you know, we're doing our workouts and my arm is balancing out pretty well. And there's this extra workout on Fridays. None of the vets show up for it. It's pretty much all the rookies. And we go in for this and it's just this big circuit routine. And one of the, um, one of the trainers like goes into a shed and just wheels out this big, huge, uh, it's this, uh, it's a uh, uh, punching bag holder and it's got two bags on it, two heavy bags. He wheels it out and he says, you know, station number seven and you're going to go for this amount of time and whatever. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is going to be easy. It's nothing. I'm an alignment. I punch like, this is what I do. And I put on the punching, I put on the, I put on the, uh, put on the gloves and we start, uh, we start our stations and I'm 15 seconds in and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm very tired. I don't know what I'm doing here, <laughs> but, um, you know, fast forward, you know, three, four months and we're a couple of weeks off from training camp. And at this point, I'm the only one that's showing up on Fridays for this. And then it just became a one-on-one just boxing workout with myself and the assistant trainer. And it was the most fun workout I'd ever had. Um, so when I got back to uh, Chicago, after I got released from the Buccaneers, I went, um, went and, uh, started working out with my, uh, my old next door neighbor and teammate Jay Wayman. And part of the, uh, part of the workouts that uh, they have set up, we would do boxing as a part of our, um, uh, as just, you know, a part of our agility training. And it just got to the point where that's all I look forward to doing was the boxing portion. And when I got released by, did you do, I got released a lot as well. <laughs> Initially, um, I got released by, I want to say it was the Redskins. Uh, I'm sorry, the Washington football team though. I got released by them. And my agent at the time just said, I don't know how this is going to work now. Um, you got released fairly early in training camp. And you know, we're just not going to really, there's just, there's just too many guys in the waiting line right now. So, you know, you might get picked up, you might not, but yeah, honestly, it's not looking great. So first couple of weeks, I kept just working out like normal. Um, I was at least trying to stay in shape as best I could. And I believe it was on a, it was a Monday evening, um, Cause I think I'd showed up, uh, I got there a little later to start my workout at this point. I was just lifting and you know, running on my own and the boxing class starts at, uh, started at that gym at about two, uh, maybe six, six thirty is when it started. And I just, I'd never stayed in the gym that late. Usually, you know, if I'm in by nine, 10, then I'm usually out by, you know, two or three. And I see the boxing class get going. I'm like, well, what's, what's going on in here? And I'd already met the, uh, the boxing coach that was, uh, running it, uh, Pat white. And he's, you know, that's just like, Oh yeah, we're running the class right now. If you want to jump in, feel free. It's no big deal. And going over the first class, I just get totally just wiped out, beat down. And I've never been so tired in my life. And there's this, you know, it's a mixed class. So there's like a, there's like a 19 year old girl in there and she's running circles around me where we're doing laps. And my, you know, my, uh, my coach and my trainer. Um, uh, so you had Pat, uh, Pat white and uh, you had RW Brown. He was, um, you know, he was an amateur boxer as well. Uh, did do some professional fighting. Um, he's like, maybe you should just switch over to boxing a little more. 
Like you've got a knack for it. You're doing pretty well. Yeah, about a month and a half into that, uh, our W comes up and he says, "Hey, uh, Golden Gloves is coming up. Maybe just think about competing in it." And just sheer terror comes over me. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. Like I'm st- like I like doing the workouts. I like doing the sparring. But I mean, I I was a kid during the Mike Tyson era, so. I just that 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 fear just like came right over me. Never met Mike Tyson, never see him. I don't think we've been in the same state at the same time, but I just had this image of like that's what those fighters are going to be like. So they eventually talked me into it, and uh, yeah, I ended up winning the whole thing. So it was pretty fun. It seems like it became a big outlet for you amidst injuries, getting released. Right, that really became your passion. And you became really darn good at it. Champion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I definitely needed that at that point in my life um, because I'd done, I'd given so much time and energy into football. And I mean, I was injured. I was injured going into the NFL uh, six months after I was cleared. No, it was less than that. It was maybe four months after I was cleared for my shoulder injury going in. Tear my other ACL, and really, I didn't have any healthy time at all, really, in the NFL, except maybe uh, that last stint with uh, with Washington. So, I'm glad that uh, you know I ended up uh, ended up boxing when I did because definitely uh, there's something I needed in my life at the time. What does it do to you to have the highest of highs getting drafted by an NFL team, and then? the lowest of lows with an injury and then another injury and getting released like the just so close together. Uh, like how did that affect you mentally? Uh, down to the dumps is not even a way to describe it. Um, you know, I've always, I, I've, I've dealt with depression and anxiety my entire life and to throw that on top of it, it was, I just want to say dev- it's devastating. I mean, the, um, after the uh, release from Washington, um, shortly thereafter, I mean, I uh, my girlfriend of uh, what was it four years, five years at the time, uh, you know, we'd broken up, uh, ended up moving back home with my dad for a bit, and it was just a perfect storm of just everything awful going on at the same time. Um, so I mean, just having something to hit was definitely therapeutic. I mean. It's really strange because the uh, actually the day the the day of the first the first day of the draft, um, I didn't expect a whole lot, but just being that being nervous and just being anxious actually made me so sick that my mom actually drove me to the hospital that day. Um, and luckily, you know, the next day I ended up getting called, getting picked up by the Bucks. But yeah, that was a great day. Granted, I was still feeling the after effects from the previous day, but still um, one of the happiest days of my life. And yeah, it just, uh, the way things ended up working out just didn't last as long as I thought it would. So the physical symptoms that led you to go to the hospital, was that in hindsight, a panic attack because you were anxious about not getting drafted? Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, my heart was going fast. Um, I didn't, uh, I had, had a knot in my stomach that was probably just the size of both my fists. And it's like I wanted to throw up, but I couldn't. 
and it just went on for so long. And I'm glad my mom was there. Um, is she was like, no, sweetheart, something's wrong. We need to get you over there now. And they were able to calm me down. And um, I feel what they gave me to just help me relax a little bit, but uh, it definitely helped at the time. So, What would you say to your younger self now when you were in that position? Ooh. I would, uh, <laughs> I would say leave the house. Don't in, uh, well, turn off the TV, turn off the radio, go see a couple of movies, um, go to the gym, go work out, just turn your brain off from all of this that's going on because you can't control any of it. Uh, the decisions have already been made or are about to be made have nothing to do with what you are doing right now. And yeah, I just would have made it a much more fun and relaxing day. Um, and you know, at the time, like my, one of my favorite things to do is just go to the movies. I just love everything about the movies and it's, you know, obviously, you know, not many people have been lately, but that's uh, what I would have done is just gone to catch a couple of movies and just stay away from all the craziness. And also I would have told myself to invest in gold at the time. Invest so. in gold. <laughs> invest in something. Yeah, yes. I mean, if you're talking to your <laughs> past self, you, is... you've got to maybe buy some Bitcoin. Well, I guess Bitcoin wasn't even around yet, but you got to give investment advice. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, if, if you don't, it's just a wasted time travel trip. So, <laughs> Hey, I'm there. So, Xavier, it's interesting to me the position you were in as a pro athlete, because as a pro athlete, especially when you're dealing with a lot of injuries, moving from team to team, being released, all this uncertainty. On top of that, you have your own depression and anxiety that you had dealt with. Now, I deal with anxiety and I'm not going through the rigors of life as a young NFL player. What did that do to you as sort of a catalyst to the issues you, you were dealing with? Well, I would say it made it so difficult to enjoy the experience. Um, it, it just brought everything down. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't allow me to just fully be present and just be grateful that, you know, I'm there with, uh, you know, these other these other guys that are, you know, in this you know high caliber of athlete, um, it's just in those quiet moments, especially is when it was the worst. Um, so if I wasn't around other guys that were in good moods, that were, um, you know, just the guys, I, I, the talkers of the locker room. If I wasn't around those guys to kind of feed off of that uh, that positivity, um, it would just I, I would just be so down that I just couldn't. Have, even comprehend that I had done all this hard work and really felt that I deserved to be with them. You know, it's, um, this, yeah, did not let me enjoy as much of the process as I, sh as I should have, or, um, really capitalize on the experience as much as I could have. So you say you're, you weren't present. Where were you? I was in my hole. <laughs> I was in my, in my cave that, um, that was in some ways a comfort because it was familiar, but it's um, just kept me away from everyone and everything. And 
yeah, just ultimately, um, in a lot of ways, it just helped me back from really, really digging in and really experiencing everything that was going on. You can correct me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but I often think about goal setting, process goals versus outcome goals, because there's such a culture around the outcome goals, right? Oh, once I make it to the NFL, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. You know, for me, it's I'm a broadcaster. So my goal is to broadcast a Super Bowl. It's like, oh, once I if I make it there, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. You know, if I win the lottery, if I, you know, get with this girl, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. But you have to also deal with yourself. The outcome that you achieve does not just erase all your issues. And I think we glorify professional athletes and think, oh, Xavier Fulton. Yeah, he was drafted. He's good. He's set. That's not the case. No, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, and even to this day, I still do that in some ways. Um, is, uh, I'm working um, up until recently, honestly, I'd been um, with my current job. Uh, love what I'm doing, working as a freight broker for, uh, for Echo Global Logistics. The, there's different, um, there was different levels to, uh, to the reps there at the company. So you got your, Core reps, I'm a core rep. Uh, I've got a cap on the amount of, um, on the revenue of a company I can work with. Uh, sounds like a lot, 250 million and under, if I can work with them, but that's their annual revenue. If it's over that, that's only for the national reps. The national reps are the ones that are, you know, doing thousands and thousands of, you know, truckload and LTL shipments, you know, a year or a month. Like somebody just did like 5,000 LTLs last month. Um, and that's just normal for them. Um, and initially when I was working or when I you know, started there, I was thinking, you know, like I was before about those, uh, about those outcome goals. And once I get to national, everything's going to be perfect. But I honestly switched my trade of thought, uh, you know, last six, seven months to, I'm just going to take this step by step. I'm going piece by piece. I'm putting that out of my mind. And just doing the work that's going to be, that's going to really pay off. And that's having the bad shipments, having clients that are not very, uh, not very, not very uh, professional on the phone, just going through all of that in order to really hit the, um, really hit those better clients down the road and just be happy in that, um, just be happy having those, uh, you know, those more positive relationships because I can compare them to those really bad ones I had before. Um, and last six, seven months, I've been doing worlds and worlds better with work. Um, so, I mean, I've been happy. My family's been happy. My bosses have been happy. So it's, 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 it, it, I'd say it's working slowly. So this really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. What you think is what you perceive and what you perceive is your reality. So you're making sure that what you're thinking is positive and thus you seem pretty darn satisfied with your reality. Yeah, I was, um, <laughs> it's funny earlier today. Um, uh, I was thinking about something very similar to the, the quotes was, uh, I mean, you are what you consistently do. And no days or mash things together. Um, I mean, lately I've been mostly on Bruce Lee quotes for some reason. I love Bruce Lee. I've actually got, um, 
I did this probably 12 years ago, maybe maybe 10 years ago. Um, I got a bunch of uh, bunch of black shirts. They're nothing fancy, and it just says "Be Water" on it. And it's you know it's from uh, the Bruce Lee's Water quote about uh, you know adaptability and flexibility. And that was just, you know, one of the things I was really into at the time. Still am. I was just wearing the shirt two days ago. Still have it. Um, that's one good thing about, uh, <laughs> about finally being done growing is that I don't have to buy that many more new clothes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, maybe a month or two ago, I saw something that was branded that, uh, that said be water on it. with a picture of Bruce Lee. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's. I could have actually just trademarked it because no one had it at the time. So you missed your moment and you should invest again. in gold. Same uh, should have invested in gold. Uh, missed the IPO for Twitter a couple of years back. Uh, too much hesitation. Should have just done it. You live and you learn. Yeah. I haven't learned yet. Let's record a podcast 2.0 next month where we bring on an investment advisor. So we can learn. For now, I can learn from you as a professional athlete. So tell me something that a layman who's never been one misconstrues about you. you know, those guys are sets. All those guys are rich. All those guys have the fancy cars. And uh, I mean, yeah, most of the guys are not uh, are not incredibly well off. I mean, even if you just think about it with... Uh, I don't know what the standard um, you know, first-year contract is um, for, uh, for an NFL player. Um, I'd say last time I looked, it was 410 uh, on the low end. So even if you look at it that way, you got to factor in. you got your regular cost of living. You've got your nutrition that you've got to take care of. You've got... Um, you got your agent, and and unless you're making millions, they're going to take that full amount that they can take. I believe it's what three percent is the max, but I mean that adds up. Um, on top of that, you know, the very first thing that comes out is all the taxes, and if you're not savvy enough, you can get taxed in two different states right away. Um, I got, uh, I was lucky enough that there was no, you know, there's no state tax in Florida, but I was still in Illinois resident when I got my signing I'll ever get from the state of Illinois is a bill for the taxes that I owe them. And I was like, why am I getting taxed this way? And it was later on that one of the other guys was like, yeah, you didn't declare your residency as Florida. So technically they can do this. So you got to pay them. That was just, I mean, you're in the highest tax bracket. It's so, I mean, what guys are taking home is definitely not what people think it is. And unfortunately, a lot of players will make the mistake of thinking that they did make it. And I remember during my, uh, <laughs> what was it, probably three weeks at uh, when I was with Indianapolis, it was very short. Um, the um, uh, paid Manning got up and actually talked in front of the team. And this was only, it was maybe a week or two after uh, final cuts. So he was like, guys, don't ever, you know, don't rest on your laurels. Don't, uh, you know, you've got to keep working hard just like we've just been doing in training camp. And he told us a story about a player that, uh, you know, you know, came from really humble beginnings, you know, struggled every step of the way. Um, 
made the team. And first thing he did was he went and got himself a car. Totally fine. Wanted to do that. Um, and he got, uh, he got a vanity license plate that said made it. Not so fast. And Peyton, yeah. Peyton, it was like, and Peyton says, uh, two weeks later, he got cut. And so where's all that leave you? I mean, it just, uh, it just reaffirms that you can't, uh, like you can't rest under your walls. Like they had said, you've got to constantly keep working and pushing in order just to survive. I mean, the, um, the that, that, that's another common misconception. Once guys get on teams that they're good. No, that is not the case. Every week they're bringing in other guys potentially to take your spot that aren't on the team currently. So, I mean, um, most people are not under, I guess, not, uh, are not aware that there's constant competition just for, uh, you know, for those current players. I mean, even guys that have been on teams for years, I mean, my brother actually just got released last week. Um, and I just found out today that he got picked up again by the Jets or Giants. I want to say Giants. It's Giants. I was told one thing and then I was just told another <laughs> thing not too long ago. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, my brother has been a player for six years in the league. He's been a very good player. He's been one of the highest paid guys on um, uh, with player performance uh, bonuses year after year. And someone like that's not safe either. I mean, it's that's another thing that uh, a lot of people don't know and will never really fully understand. That pressure like, cooker. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. It's uh, uh, I, I forget where I heard this one from, but it's. Uh, you know, pro football, it, uh, it feeds on the youth or feeds on the blood of the young. I mean, it's, there's always a younger, stronger, faster guy coming in. Um, but that was definitely a lesson I carried over to the CFL was to constantly be pushing and working to not just, uh, you know, be as good as you are, which is good enough to, you know, make the team, but you gotta be good enough to uh, continue staying on the team. You have to make the team every week, essentially. So I can't imagine that most people don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, for people who have non-pro football jobs, it's like, imagine someone sits at a desk next to you and tries to outwork you at whatever you're doing. And if they do even marginally better, you might just get fired and they'll take your spot. Yeah. It'd be like, uh, yeah, just having someone sitting in the corner of your the corner of, uh, you know, wherever you're working or someone off to the side of the site, just constantly checking. Okay. All right. If the numbers make sense then all right, you're out of there. That's and when you are out of there, yeah, the it's breaking news on social media, ESPN, all over the place. Yep. Um, yeah, most people are never going to actually or never fully understand how uh, how stressful those kind of situations are. I mean, but it's you know, once you're in it for long enough, um, you just have to really get comfortable with uh, you. Or you don't have to, but you most guys will just get comfortable with that fact that it's a business no matter what start to finish it's all business and most of the time it's not personal <laughs> but there are the odd occasions you know where you know, players and coaches don't get along but that's very few and far in between so i'm curious your reaction to it the first time you got cut versus the more mature xavier the final time how are those similar and or different? Oh man, the first time 
I got cut was in a group setting. Um, this is Tampa or I was sitting in, uh, yeah, this was in Tampa. I was sitting down and, uh, I just gotten, uh, they had an omelet station there, which is pretty awesome. That's uh, really awesome. In one buck. Yeah. They had omelet station they had a really, they had a pretty good spread over there for food. Not gonna lie. Um, so I get my omelet. I've got it a little bigger than normal today. So it's taking up the whole plate. Uh, it's piping hot, just a little salt, a little pepper, dash of hot sauce, fork ready to go. Talking to one of the guys across the table. And before I even get in for that first bite, just hand on my shoulder. Hey, coach wants to see you. Not sure what it's about. Bring your playbook. Whole table goes quiet. And then they just suddenly pretend like they can't see me anymore. They all knew what was happening, and so did I. Um, so I went and just got dressed and uh, went upstairs, and there was probably 10 other guys that were in there as well. Um, a couple of guys were, you know, two- and three-year players, and they're just bawling their eyes out. And it was the most depressing room to be in. I mean, it was terrible. Um, I, I held it together pretty well. Um, did the quick exit interviews, got the, you know, hey, we appreciate your effort. Uh, it's just not going to work out. And the really last thing uh, Raheem Moore said to me was, uh, like, hey, you know, I understand this is just business. Um, you know, I wish you all the best. Prove me wrong. And that was that. I made it out to my car. And then I'm just crying my eyes out. I called my dad <laughs> and uh, he tried his best to reassure me. And um, then I slowly drove home and just sat there. It was just, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I spoke to my agent and he tried to reassure me as well. And uh, he was going to get me out there on the circuit to start doing uh, workouts and uh, you know, doing, uh, just doing you know, the trials for teams. And you know, fast forward, we're at uh, you know nine and a half years later, pretty much ten years later, and I'm with Montreal, and we had um, we had a short practice after our uh, after our bye week. It was nothing crazy, but what I do remember is that it was probably one of the worst practices I've had in a while. <laughs> it was because uh, they moved us indoors and. The uh, the practice facility for the for the Montreal Alouettes is at Olympic Stadium, massive massive place. Um, I think they were they were filming two movies during one of the practices we were having. Like we just kept seeing like a fog machine just going in one of the corners. There was a horse walking around at one point, and it was apparently there are more movies filmed in that. There are way more movies filmed in that movie than filmed in that city than I thought. Um, they blocked off part of our street once actually, because they were filming the, uh, one of the X-Men movies. Um, my wife and I were walking to go see, uh, we're walking to go to the movies. We're actually going to see black Panther. And we come up from the, <laughs> come up from the, um, uh, uh, it was the, we, we took the train. Uh, it wasn't very far, but still we took the train. We get up from the, uh, the train stop and we make it to the corner and across the street, we see this lady just stumbling down the street and her left side is just covered in blood. 
And we're like, oh my God, what we need to call someone. Like we're about to run over to help her. And then we look a little ways down this uh down the street and we see there's this whole film crew just set set up at the end of the block. That ain't blood. <laughs> we're like, oh my God. <laughs> They're filming a movie. Dear God. So oh man, I don't know how I branched off to that, but you know, the practice was in the Olympic Stadium indoors, and the padding like just it was just really bad. They had um they just didn't have enough of the uh, you know the turf out there above the concrete. So I already got bad knees, and I'm one of the oldest guys on the team. I think it was like the second or third oldest guy. And so just a few you know, after the first hour out there, I mean, I'm freaking hurt and just a slide, but nothing crazy anyway. And right, it was right after that practice, I got called up. Um, it was Cavis Reed, and it's really funny because Cavis Reed was the guy that actually originally signed me to Edmonton. So Cavis was present for my entry into the CFL. And then he says, we just got to make some certain moves based on, um, uh, based on the ratio. And we've got to let you go. I appreciate your work. Hey, I understand. Uh, you guys do what you got to do. I appreciate you guys uh, having me out here. So my entry and exit from the CFL revolved around Cavis Reed, which was pretty crazy. <laughs> but I got home. Um, I wasn't very upset. Uh, I was just tired. I was just mentally, physically just drained. And got home, and I want to say it was probably 11 or 12 when I got home, and my wife was sitting there, uh, sitting at home. She was uh, doing some work, and as soon as she saw me, she knew. She just ran over, gave me a hug, and she's like, hey, it's okay. Um, we'll do what we got to do. And, uh, yeah, not a single tear wasn't very, yeah, not very upset at all. I was just, it is what it is. Why is it that you had such a different reaction than the first time? Uh, I mean, at the core of it, it's all, it was still, it was, there was a little more anger this time around because I was a starter. Um, because I was, uh, I had gotten re-signed. I gotten re-signed to Montreal for uh, it was a two-year contract, and it was out of nowhere. Like I'd been playing well. Um, I had some hiccups early on, um, where I was like they set me for a quarter, and then I was right back, to, you know, right back to starting. Not so long after that, and doing well. Played an amazing game the week before. And it was really weird because the um, my offensive line coach called me after the fact um, and the assistant um, offensive line coach uh, who actually was there for my first year in Tampa, which is also funny. Uh, and they were surprised. They're like, we didn't know anything was going on. Uh, so they were surprised. And yeah, it was just no one else knew that I was being released except for Cavis. So it was just a weird situation. So I was a little... I was more angry than I was upset. And I was also so far into my career that I was okay. You know, it was, I made it to my 10th season and my goal was to make it to 10 years. Um, so I got there and I was okay leaving it alone. And my agents, I called my agents or actually my agent called me and he said, yeah, I'm going to you know, see what we can do to get you back on a team and everything. And, I was like, okay, that's fine, but 
I wasn't really pushing uh, like I was in years before when I was released. Um, so I was okay just not putting it on again. So being outside of the pro football meat grinder pressure cooker thing, what have you learned most about being open about anxiety, about depression, about whatever it is you're going through? Because I know you've been outspoken about that since retiring. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say that there are definitely a lot. Uh, the stigma does not need to be there as it's it, the stigma is not as hard or as uh, prevalent as people may perceive it to be. Um, because the moment I moment I put it out there, the moment I you know, told my family, the moment I told the um, uh, told any of my coaches, um, the moment I told my uh, my employers, they were each and every time. It's a little more surprising that just how caring and how open and honest people are with you when you are open and honest with them. Um, that's the yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned. Is it's just it's not it's not as scary as it needs to be. Um, it's like uh, it, it's like having nerves going into a game. They don't need to be there as much just because you know what you're doing. You've done it for X amount of plays beforehand, and then once you step on the field, it all goes away. It's just, I mean that. Uh, process between being nervous about telling someone and just getting it out. I haven't learned how to do that with the IPOs, but <laughs> I'm doing it where it counts. <laughs> I would say I'm it's more important it with your mental health. Hundred percent, yeah, definitely hundred um, percent. But yeah, that's the, that's the thing I would actually say is the uh, is the biggest part. You know, just shortening that time, getting it out there. And it's still nice to have that pleasant surprise where people are like, hey, I'm, I'm with you. I'm here. Uh, I'll help where I can. If you need a moment, if you need anything from me, I'm right here. You know, Right. Humans can be pretty darn good sometimes, especially the ones who already know and love you can be pretty good. And mm-hmm. Xavier, it's really interesting to me. That's something I haven't heard yet. You saying the stigma isn't as bad as it might appear to be. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about it because. So often we say, oh, there's the stigma, the stigma, the stigma, and it makes it into something bigger than it needs to be and maybe spooks people out of being open because it's like, oh, if I'm open, I'm approaching the stigma. And I'm not denying that there is a stigma, and I know you're not either, but it is helpful to think about, like, yes, there is this stigma, but if you're open with someone you love, no stigma is going to keep them from helping you. Correct. hundred um, percent. It's like, uh, it's like, what, you know, what's that terrible sound in the woods? And it turns out it's just a cat up a tree or something. You know, it's just, it's not as dangerous and big as people think. Um, I'd, um, cause I mean, the moment that, uh, the moment I told my family, um, that was the main concern. Not so much that, uh, you know, I, have depression and anxiety. It was the, what are other people going to think? You know, um, that's what I got from my dad was, okay, uh, I love you, son. 
Um, you know, we're definitely your family. We're going to be here for you no matter what. I'm just worried that this is going to negatively impact your football career. And, you know, there's conversationships to that. And it was, I mean, it was a few months before I was back in, uh, back in Canada and had a chance to actually sit down with, uh, um, you know, with my coaches and inform them. But, you know, that time in between was terrifying because, I mean, guys have, uh, you know, guys have been blacklisted in, you know, both leagues and I'm sure other leagues for other things that they thought were, you know, much less of a concern. So it was a big leap of faith um, and it paid off. And I'm, in my mind, I like to think that if I had that conversation with my dad and I was already in Canada and I could have just gone right over, it would have made it so much easier. But that time in between, um, you know, being in the States and then going back to Canada to have that conversation was uh, very worrying, very daunting. So, But being open seems like it's gone a long way for you. Definitely. Definitely. Um, improved my relationships. Um, definitely, uh, definitely strengthened some. And the best thing that, uh, the best thing that came out of it, um, was that, uh, actually going into, you know, it was my, my last season with Montreal, actually, um, our coach had us, uh, early on, you know, stand up, uh, this, us older guys, uh, <laughs> had us all just kind of speak to the, uh, speak to the old line, just you know, doing like the, uh, the intro portion there because the coaches were new, but most of the players were the same. So we did, uh, we just went around the room and, you know, we're just, you know, telling things about ourselves. And one of the first things I said was I have depression and anxiety and this is how it's affected me. And this is how I hit it. This is how I dealt with it on my own. And this is part of who I am. And I just left that door open, um, you know, saying that, you know, if any of you guys need to talk about anything, I'm here. I'm bad. I've probably seen it and done it anyway. So, and after that meeting, one of the guys, one of the rookies um, came up to me is like, I also have depression and anxiety and, you know, I take medication for it. And we just had a really good conversation. Um, he's still with the team to this day. And I'd like to think I make his, made his time there a little bit easier because he was able to at least talk to someone else that understood what he was going through. You paid it forward. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Definitely. Do. Um, the one thing that's, um, that does glare out at me though, in this experience, um, was that there were, there's so many other guys that need help or needed help and didn't get it uh, just because they, again, they were just so afraid of that stigma um, negatively impacting them that uh, it didn't get help before it was too late. Uh, Daniel Dufresne was a, uh, was running back. That was what this hit at, uh, at U of I. Um, he was behind Richard Mendenhall. Uh, so they, you know, they traded off originally and then, you know, Richard was the guy. And when Richard left, Daniel was the guy. Um, and it was only a couple of years after he left college that Daniel actually killed himself. There wasn't uh, you know, any indication whatsoever, uh, not while we were in school, not, uh, not immediately after. Um, but uh, you know, it was determined later that uh, you know, it was from you know, extreme depression. And uh, you know, Daniel just didn't get help, and no one around him recognized the science in time.
Um, I mean, I, just from my own experience, um, I'd say part of it has to do with just, uh, you know, within the black community, it's not generally don't trust doctors. And, you know, it's, it's often a sign of weakness uh, or considered a sign of weakness uh, you know, to reach out for help, uh, especially anything to do with uh, our mental health, um, our mental and emotional health. And even more so amongst athletes, I mean, we're supposed to be the alphas of all alphas. I mean, we're supposed to be these all-time tough guys. And you know, it's just not, uh, just not what we do or not what we're supposed to do anyway. Um, according to uh, according to everyone else, we're we're rich guys set for life that get all the girls and are supposed to be just tough all the time. Um, this is not the case. So that makes it thousand times more difficult to say, "Hey, I I struggle with this. I have depression. I have anxiety. I seek help, and that's okay." Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and easily one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, um, or ever wanted to do. And I mean, the rewards on the other side were way more, much greater than I ever thought they could be. Um, and if I, uh, speaking to my younger self, I would have said, do this soon. Xavier, I really appreciate you coming on here and being so open, so honest with me about what you've gone through and how you think that can help others. I mean, I really see people like you who have a platform being open and honest. And I think that can help the millions of people who need something like that to hold on to. So thank you. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on Sam and uh, I will do my best to keep, uh, you know, keep doing the work and doing it in a positive manner. And Maybe, just maybe, I'll get back in the ring one more time. Thank you to Xavier Fulton for coming on The Mento Game. Open, honest, forthcoming. His message is important. If you need help, get help. And especially if you're worried about yourself or a loved one in a serious way, as Xavier reminded you at the end. Make sure you call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800 273 8255. So again, I thank Xavier Fulton for coming on the podcast. And in the meantime, remember to take care of yourself, take care of others, and I'll talk to you next time. I'm Sam Brief on The Mental Game. Adios.